listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hi there, welcome to episode 41 of uh, Right Where You Are Sitting Now, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk, and now also for the site alterati.com. Uh, joining me is the uh, the head honcho, the Rupert, Rupert Murdoch, if you will, of uh, <laughs> of Alterati, uh, Joseph Matheny. Hi, Joseph. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I've actually been accused of being the Rupert Murdoch of the of the counterculture, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> you will collect us all. <laughs> it's like yeah, that, that must be the yeah. We're the Borg Collective, and you will be assimilated. I guess that's what it means. <laughs> well, like Pokemon or something like that. But yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about Alterati. Like, what is it, and uh, uh, what do we do to deserve you know, to, the privilege of being on your site, basically? Um, well, you put out a good show for one thing, and the other thing is you ask nicely. So that's <laughs> you know that's that's all it takes, really. Um, Alterati is uh, started well. You know, literally, it started back as Grey Lodge. Um, God, how many years ago we start that seven something like that now? And uh, we did. uh, We used to do the Grey Lodge Occult Review, and then we got into Torrance, and we were doing wild and weird and woolly experimental films that at the time nobody else was doing. Not even you couldn't find them on Pirate Bay or anywhere. We were finding like extremely rare and strange things, and then uh, Ubu Web noticed what we were doing, and we partnered up with them because we had stuff they didn't have, and they had stuff that we didn't have. And uh, somewhere down the line, MSNBC and the Wall Street Journal got interested in what we were doing, and we just exploded. Um, we went literally at one point during the high point, we were servicing about 15 million unique IPs a month worldwide. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, from that, you know, we decided that we were going to get into podcasting as well. And this probably about six years ago, somewhere around there. Hmm. And um, at the time, it was a pretty emerging art form and uh we started the gray lodge podcasting company which not wasn't really a company but it was a wink and a nudge kind of thing and um that got really popular and then as uh gray lodge was actually a a collaboration between uh, a bunch of people but primarily between myself and a a gentleman out of norway calls himself dr gray and uh, there's been many many people on forums and stuff who have speculated that I'm Dr. Gray or Dr. Gray as one of my aliases and that could not be further from the truth by the way he's a real person um, and a very talented person and a, and a very great guy um, recently a couple months ago had a uh, bicycle accident and broke a lot of bones I saw the x-rays it was, made me flinch just looking at it and uh, strangely enough in some sort of weird synchronistic sympathy um, I broke my leg in four places about the same time uh, which shows you that we're like oddly connected at, at the hip somehow astrally <laughs> but um, anyway he is still undergoing a, a lot of uh, therapy and stuff is going on with that and there was internal injuries and so he has taken a hiatus from Grey Lodge um, I made an announcement to that effect and, and uh, I was working on Alterati um, it was always a sister site that I started originally just to do podcasting and news and uh, different things that we were doing over at Grey Lodge. Um, a little more music oriented at times and we were talking to musicians and um, I decided to kind of reboot Alterati just purely as a video and audio podcasting station, mm. uh, which is something I've always wanted to do and that's why I started Grey Lodge podcasting because I've always wanted to have this thing that was kind of the 21st century equivalent of what a radio and TV station used to be. Mm. 
Um, and I know many people in the past have done that. For example, you know, there was Pseudo and Razorfish and all the the failed uh, streaming things that happened in the 90s and the early 2000s. But um, wasn't Richard now with Pseudo. podcasting? Yeah, Richard. Was, I think Richard's Affinity Factory was was on Pseudo, right? Yeah, was yeah, on? I think it was. Yeah, it was. Uh... One of the uh, this is Richard Metzger we're talking about. If anyone doesn't know, but yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was on Pseudo because I remember I watched. There was a film about the guy that. Uh, that yeah, we live in public. Yeah, that was brilliant. That film it was really, really well. Yeah, done. so that's that's what I'm talking about. Is that whole there was there was a push, which I was involved with. I was involved in in early online video. I used to do uh, consulting with progressive networks out of Seattle, which was the real people. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, the the real video people and. Uh, and I was working for Adobe at the time, and and we were trying to do something together, and that kind of didn't happen because, you know, the bandwidth wasn't there, uh, the, the 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 broadband had not proliferated to all the households yet, the infrastructure couldn't support it. There was a lot of reasons why it didn't happen, hmm. um, but it was a valiant first attempt, and it definitely was the uh, the loss leader and the icebreaker for people like us now who have come along with the new model. Which is podcasting, and and with the strong arm of companies like Apple and iTunes and and uh, other places like that that have kind of uh, picked up the mantle and and uh, you know done the the heavy lifting in front of us, we're able to now uh, narrowcast. I was almost said broadcast, but it's not broadcast anymore. It's narrowcast um, content of a extremely alternative nature that people can download when they want to pretty much any format they want to put it on whatever device they want to put it on and that's kind of like you know what I've always envisioned was like having whatever the TV and radio thing was going to become it's becoming this and so we're you know we decided to do Alterati um, as, a, as a station for, for you know it's, it's hard to find words right now because all of this is all so transmedial mm. everything kind of blends over but it's you know it's, it's media it's the new form of media delivered in the new way for for people out there that want to watch and listen to things and so instead of radio we have people you know downloading uh shows off of alterati every day and we're now starting to build up our our video department so we're we're kind of be the tv alternative as well yeah this is where we're going to come in again hopefully <laughs> yeah absolutely excellent so yeah i've always been a fan of your show and um you know, uh, when you contacted me, I thought it was a perfect fit. You know, and and same thing with the Evolver people. You know, and, mm. and other people who have contacted us, and it's been really great. You know, it's like I get to meet people whose uh, whose uh, stuff that they do that I admire, and and we get to you know, push it out there, and our footprint gets bigger, and their footprint gets bigger, and you know, our our strategy is really raise the harbor and raise all the boats that's the way we look at it yeah definitely i think because um, we're having some real problems of our site at the moment someone's hacked us and we're not quite sure so we're actually redesigning the whole site at the moment anyway which we were in the middle of doing anyway so the, the, yeah it's annoying so i think what we might do is um for now for this this show maybe the next one if it's okay with you is actually link to the alterati site uh, version of the podcast if that's okay. Yeah, by yeah. all means. Yeah. Yeah, just because uh, we've had you know people not being able to get hold of our shows. So it's typical. Yeah, I mean, back in the early days, that was one of the reasons that Grey Lodge we went to Tor we went to Torrance. It wasn't because we wanted to to be pirates. Well, we did, but um, it wasn't that wasn't the underlying reason. The reason was that we originally went up pre-torrent and uh, just had direct downloads. And uh, one month, I got a three thousand dollar bandwidth overage bill in Ouch. the mail. Yeah, <laughs> and I said. Well, if we're going to keep doing this, we need to come up with a solution. And, and uh, we sat down and looked at torrents, which were also brand new at the time, and said, you know, this BitTorrent thing, I think this is what we need to do. And mm -hmm. then one thing led to another, and 
there we went. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so, I mean, how how I mean, how far do you want to take Alterati? Do you reckon? Can you see yourself maybe streaming at some point, or you know, like maybe doing like a sort of live Alterati, or in, you know, maybe some kind of rebroad like a broadcast almost of the shows or. Yeah, what we what we want to do, and we've looked at different solutions like Blog Talk Radio. But I really, I really wince at the quality of, of broadcast that comes off of Blog Talk Radio. So we ended up not going with that. But we do want to do something like that. We want to do, uh, you know, some of the shows we'd like to be live and then podcast afterwards. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. That way we could get audience interaction in real time. Yeah, um, something like i.e. chat and call-ins and stuff like that. Something like Bit Gravity. Yeah, they do that sort of service, but I think they're quite expensive. So. <laughs> yeah, so we're looking. We're trying to look at something we can we can hack together. And you know, being that that you know, mo- a lot of the people that are involved in Alterati are hackers like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, we feel like we can put something together and not have to pay an exorbitant fee for one thing. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so we're looking at that. We're looking at uh, you know real-time television type stuff or, or video type stuff where you know there's uh, there's that. But then also you know if you look at like uh, Clark, which is a series that's running right now on our sh- on our uh, station, um, that's you know that's something that's episodic and and uh, wouldn't work in real time. But then there's people that do shows that I think like. Uh, the undo podcast would be great in video in real time where they could be sitting in front of the camera doing the exercises and people could be on the telephone or on you know Skype or something and, and asking them questions in real time. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be really, really good. So tell us a little bit about the other shows. I mean, we've mentioned Richard Metzger and you've obviously and uh, Evolver. Tell us a little bit about, about their shows and some of the other shows that you can get on Alterati. Yeah, so Dangerous Minds, obviously, which is uh, Richard Metzger and Brad Lehner. Um, and I did an interview with Brad on my show called uh, Fear and Loathing on the Internet. Um, Brad's a great musician and has a really um, great and peculiar taste in music. And when I say peculiar, I mean that as a compliment. Um, and Richard, of course, is Richard. We all know who that is. And he's just got a peculiar taste in everything. Um, but that, again, is a compliment. Yeah. Um, and they do a great show together. It's like really cool, weird, out there stuff that's, you know, poppy and catchy, but still at the same time got a, a slight bend to it mm. um the evolver uh podcast is uh you know um and by the way for anybody who's wondering about evolver podcast that is still happening um richard the guy who does the evolver podcast and his uh his life mate i guess you would say just had a baby so um they're a little off the grid right now but he just told me that there will be a show coming up again soon he'll be back in the in the uh the cycle of doing shows so that Evolver comes out of EvolverNet, which is uh, Daniel Pinchbeck and, and the Reality Sandwich people, which we have a good relationship with. Um, we have Undo, the Undoing podcast, which is uh, a Original Falcon slash Dr. Hyatt-oriented uh, podcast, and Original Falcon is a great partner and friend of ours. Yeah, a great um, publisher as well, definitely. Great publisher, my, one of my publishers, actually, and uh, I, you know, but just great people, and, I, and I'm not saying that just because they're one of my publishers. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, they, they, you know, they, they are cool. responsible in, in a lot of ways for who I am today. You know, mm. um, well, I know one of the first things that bent my head was walking into this occult bookstore in Chicago in 1987 and running across books by Robert Anton Wilson, who I'd already started reading. Like, I think I read Illuminatus and Cosmic Trigger and maybe Schrodinger's Cat at that point. Um, and then ran across all these other books that were coming out on this strange little press called Falcon. And then, of course, that's how I became in touch with Antar Ali and, you know, all this Christopher Hyatt and all these uh, great things. And then I, you know, began as I got into the 
Golden Dawn tradition, I noticed that there was a lot of stuff from Regardi that was coming out through them, and one thing led to another, and I became friends with them. But, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they're probably responsible for more freakdom out there than most people realize. Yeah, I mean, they're totally responsible. I mean, that's exactly my story as well in many ways. I'm just looking up at my bookshelf right now, and I can see many Falcon books up there, like the entire Wilson collection, pretty much. And like I said, Israel Regardi, yeah. Leary. Uh, yeah, yep, they're all out there. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah if, if you can think of a if you can think of a seditious character in the last forty years, they probably published him. <laughs> I think they, those guys and uh, Parfrey's company, what they call Feral House, they uh, yeah. they're pretty much responsible for a lot of uh, mind bending I think, <laughs> in this world. Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, I'm I'm happy to be uh, you know uh, associated and affiliated with them and, and putting out podcast material and then there's my show which is fear and loathing on the internet which used to be called uh g-spot which before that was called g-pod radio because it was over on uh, gray lodge podcasting hmm. um and that's been going almost seven years now that i've been doing that and that's basically just a, a talk show where i have different people on and we have conversations and the whole method and madness to my show is that uh, years ago i had a book that did really well and got in you know got a lot of press and i was doing interview after interview after interview on radio and television for about six months and i noticed that i was getting asked about the same 10 questions Mm. um, and most of the time the people that were interviewing me apparently had no idea who i was and were not familiar with my work and um, i found that offensive and tiring answering the same questions over and over again and I, as I found myself falling into robotic answering, I said, no, 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 I'm going to stop doing interviews if this is the way it's going to be. And then I sat down and said, you know, I want to do a talk show where it's actually a conversation and not, you know, a, re- a call and response situation where somebody's reading a list of questions that they got off of, out of some book that's, you know, this is how to interview somebody. <laughs> yeah. And, and just really do a conversation that may or may not have to do with like any given piece of work they may have just done, but specifically just getting to know the person mm. as a person. And so that's what Fear and Loathing is about. It's just sitting down with artists and getting to know them and getting to know other opinions that they have. If they're a musician, I talk to them about literature and I talk to them about, you know, what's it like to be a musician these days and do you care about getting a label deal and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's... Uh, it's 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 a kind of a liberating experience to be able to, to talk to people and almost without exception anybody who I I have a conversation with comes out of it tells me that that was refreshing. It's not the same ten questions that everybody always asks me. They let me you know I get to talk about something else for a change. Yeah, and also I, I think within with podcasting as well, you get a chance to kind of you give the kind of the guest a bit of space, don't you, to actually talk about what they want to talk about when they're when they're on a radio show. Obviously, there's certain restrictions of stuff they can't talk about or there's a time limit i know when we had arthur goldwag on he was really happy that he actually got to talk at length about what it is that he does <laughs> sort of thing just stuff like that can be uh, quite liberating for people i think they quite enjoy it yeah that's what i when i interviewed Antro for my show um he he said the same thing he was like that was a lot of fun because i actually got to talk about stuff i wanted to talk about and not just answer the stupid stock questions that you know he said the same thing after the show that i had always said which is it's very frustrating to be interviewed by somebody who obviously hasn't read your work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that's the other thing is I make sure I read the work or I know the work. I'm already familiar with the work in some way. And uh, so there's that show. There's you, Obviously, you've got two shows now that, that are on Alterati, which is uh, 
behind closed doors and sitting now, which this, that's what this show is. Yep. <laughs> I hope so. Anybody, anybody who's not familiar with sitting now and behind closed doors, you know, go check it out at uh, sittingnow.co.uk. Is that right? Yeah, it's either co UK or or com. We've got com as well. So. Oh, okay. Dot com. Yeah. Um, and check out the the uh, the backlog of their shows because you know I don't subscribe to a lot of podcasts anymore. I'm very selective, but sitting now is one of the ones that I do subscribe to. So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> so that's, that's my recommendation. Go check it out. Go look at their backlog of uh, people. They have the kind of guests on there that actually hold my interest, and and uh, you know you guys do a great job with that. And uh, we talked about Evolver. We have Clark, which is um, a, a very strange and interesting. Um, video mockumentary yeah it's really it's good i enjoyed the first one it was really good yeah so the second one's coming out uh in a couple days and um that will be every two weeks and uh it's it's i think it's hilarious i i got a real kick out of it yeah it's really good i enjoyed it as well definitely. it's it's good acting it's shot well it's uh, written well and it's um it's definitely making fun of some things that i like to make fun of so i can i can resonate with that and we have uh small world by the way I don't, don't want to forget to mention them, and they've got a, a show that they do every two weeks, and it's um, Bazooka Joe had a show called The Small World for for years, mm. and ran up this huge archive, and then he got hacked really bad, um, and took the site offline. But luckily, what had happened is I'd already asked him if I could build a database for him so people could search the archives of Small World because he has a lot of great guests or had a lot of great guests on that show. Mm. And he does occasionally do a new show, like once every couple of months, but mostly it's in the archive that he had sent me before he got hacked. So oh. I had everything here. And then I said, well, why don't we just start rolling them out on Alterati, um, the Small World archives, because these shows are you know, really strong and really cool and, and all still really very relevant. Mm. Um, if you look at the one that ran last week, it had to do with Esalen Institute, and it's all cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, I really enjoyed that show. It was really good. So. Yeah, and then Joe also does uh, Solipsistic Nation, um, which is a techno show which he runs on Sundays. Mm. Um, that's on our on our station as well, and that's a really really solid, cool uh, kind of modern electronica te- techno thing where he has the uh, the artist on, and they sometimes they play live, or sometimes he records a show and then he interviews them, and that's a, that's a great show. Yeah. Uh, what else? I mean, am I missing anything? Oh, uh, Tuesdays! My God, how could I forget Tuesdays? So. Tuesdays is um, there's like four shows that rotate on Tuesday, mm. and um, that is uh, P. Emerson Williams, who is also known as Caronzon, mm. uh, and he works with John Zweiss from uh, Sleep Chamber, and uh, a couple other people that they do they do a rotating thing. So there's like Tape Culture, which is like old Tape Culture Industrial on one t- one Tuesday, then the next Tuesday. Um, he's got something that he started doing recently called Satan's Tastemakers. Oh yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And then there's um, John comes on every once in a while and does a show. So it's a rotating kind of a, a rotating Tuesday. We just call it Music Tuesdays. Mm. Uh, and he owns the day and he comes in and does uh, one of several shows. He also does Weaponized with Foolish People. Yeah, uh, which is one of the Tuesday shows. And it's just whatever they go through a rotation of different shows. So just look on. Alterati in the right-hand column under Music Tuesdays, and you'll see uh, all the different shows that that could rotate at any given time on Tuesday. And I think I covered it all. There was some other shows that were uh, going on for a while, like uh, Radio Chaos, but he I think is on hiatus right now. Hmm. But there is an archive there. That's Wes Unruh, um, and he's just doing uh, 
uh, what would I say, strange surrealist mix of, <laughs> of music and talk and whatever. And uh, he's very connected with the uh, Infictive Country movement, if you're familiar with that, which is, you know, it's hard to describe. And, and in fact, you don't want to describe what it is because mm -hmm. you'd ruin it by describing it. But it's, it's uh, just look up Infictive Country on Google and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's this great archive of uh, you know bizarre things and and uh, odd oddities and uh, Wes is one of those people that likes to just kind of pour all that kind of stuff together in a show mm. so I think that's it I think I, I think I covered it all yeah it's definitely I mean I think that one of the reasons I asked for us to kind of you know to, to consider us was that I think it's it's important and also quite cool to kind of um, you know build a community and you know with, you know all these kind of things cool things happening and that's definitely what you know, so actually, I, I remember talking to Raymond about. It. I think we even spoke about it on the show, but it was just the actual, you know, the, the hellishness of actually kind of trying to put it together. I and mean, I think you've done a really good job of actually, you know, collecting all these shows together and you know providing a really good platform. So thanks a lot for having us on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I, I did forget Transmedia Talk, and I did. Oh yeah, no. yeah I, I thought there was one more. I was thinking that. <laughs> I, we have so many shows now. I can't keep up with them all. But Transmedia Talk is is a great uh, show that is hosted by several professionals in the transmedia industry um, who talk about you know alternate reality gaming and transmedia and different things like that and they, they, they do reviews of new transmedia pieces that are out there and I think it's a very important piece mm. uh, because that is an emerging art form that uh, that I've been involved in since before it was called transmedia and before it was called ARG but um, it's it's a it's definitely the emerging art form I think if, if you want to think of it as anything it's cross-media Hmm. Uh, using mixed media and cross media, telling stories across mediums, so that a story that starts in a book could pick up on a on a, a video that can then pick up in an audio that can pick up somewhere else and can become a, an event where you have to phone, pick up the phone and call a number and go to a store and pick up a piece of paper and hmm. you know it's 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 a really great immersive. Um, kind of uh, uh, medium yeah definitely and, and I think that it's coming on stronger than it has been over the years but it you know it definitely is still somewhat marginalized as an art form and I like to champion that art form because it is one that I practice myself yeah definitely. I mean I, I remember I think we, we spoke about this before but um, the, a game I always really wanted to play that looked quite cool was a game called Majestic and I think you said you were involved in that in some way yeah it was actually part of the part of the team um, the the unfortunate thing about Majestic is I think it started strong and the timing was off because um, where we were going next, unfortunately, was already written and filmed and uh, the videos were filmed and everything. And it had to do with a terrorist bombing of a building, um, a government building. And then what happened was 9-11 uh, happened mm. and uh, EA kind of lost their nerve. Yeah, and that's not that's not a public story that that. that sometimes disturbs me that they that's not the public face they put on it but that definitely is the communique that we received as people that were part of the beta team mm. um, that was in the development team because they unfortunately there was uh, there was an element of the story that was going to use Ankh's hat and that's why I was called in to be part of the team mm. um, and that's how I met my my uh, former writing partner Dave Sobolski who rest in peace passed away but um, he was part of the Majestic team as well and that's how we met oh wow okay that was uh, from that came um, Chasing the Wish, which is one of the most famous ARGs ever done. Which was, in a lot of ways, if you look at what he did, it's really Ong's Hat 2.0, because um, it it did use Ong's Hat as its starting place and and uh, took place in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey in Ong's Hat, and um, 
the uh, the book that came out of that was This Is Not a Game, which was the first uh, history book written about ARG that was written by Dave and edited and collated and, and uh, contributed to by myself. Yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, man, thanks a lot for coming on and uh, just you know giving us a kind of a taster, I suppose, of uh, what we can expect on <coughs> excuse me on Alterati. And uh, yeah, I mean, we really look forward to working with you. I think we were talking about maybe doing another show together at some point as well. So that's something else to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the whole community thing. You know, I just want to throw that out there before we go. Is this? You know, I was just talking to some musicians about this the other day, and um, I think I think with the economy and the current economic and political climates and the way things are going right now, I think more and more people need to learn or relearn how to work together within a community. And I think that's something that we lost in the last 50 years for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think we need to reclaim that because we can't count on government and we can't count on corporations and we can't count on anything other than ourselves. And the only way we're going to be able to survive is to kind of move back to a tribal uh, cooperative state, you know, where we're all working together. And I'm not preaching communism or socialism or capitalism or anything when I say that. I'm just saying humans, you know, work together in tribes. And that's what we do. That's how you can take down a mastodon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's very uh, Douglas Rushkoff esque statement there. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, man, thanks a lot for coming on. And uh, we'll play some adverts now. And then uh, we'll roll our interview with uh, Steve Ignorant from Crass, who's a uh, a legendary punk figure so this is going to be quite a good show i think so uh, yeah we'll see you after the break Airy radio opening the door to the unknown listener feedback really looking forward to the new episodes so keep up with your work guys thanks interviews there's so many movies so many documentaries even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe you know this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on visit eerie radio at www.eerieradio.com what's better than shooting the shit about the occult shooting with us of course i'm avayel tender loving co-host of outer symmetry if you're looking for a podcast that covers everything from Lady Gaga to the Montauk Monster, you're in the right place. Myself and my husband Adamus pull you down the rabbit hole with us twice a month to keep you informed and up to date on all the topics you want to know about. So sit down, tune in, and fade out. Subscribe to Outer Symmetry today. Okay, today's guest is uh, Steve Ignorant. Um, Steve was the singer of the, frankly, seminal punk band Crass, and... Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Even if you're not really a fan of punk rock, you're getting a, in this interview a kind of uh, a glimpse into what was going on in that particular period of time, the late 70s into the 80s, and kind of shows you like kind of why Crass as a band and the movement were important. And uh, yeah, I think this is a really good interview. I hope you enjoy it. This is uh, Steve Ignorant from Crass.
thanks so much for coming on the show and giving us some of your time, even with the technical difficulties <laughs> we've been getting yeah. so far. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of how you, you know, Steve Ignorant prior to Crass, like where you grew up, you know, the early days, as it were. Uh, well, I grew up in a place called Dagnum. Um, I was born in a, I was born in Stoke-on-Trent, uh, but when I was two, we moved down to Dagnum uh, to live with my grandparents. And basically, my early life it was spent in the suburbs where nothing particularly exciting happens, um, and you know, you just sort of muddle along day to day. Um, and you know, I did what any sort of teenager does really. Went to school um, when I was in my teens. Started going down West Ham football. Uh, got into that, and uh, you know, later on, got started listening to a little bit of music. Um, and uh, when I was about oh, when was it? When I was about uh, seventeen, I moved down to Bristol and went to see a punk band called The Clash which got me into punk rock and the rest, as they say, is history. So, you know, a very normal, bog-standard upbringing. Tell us a little bit about kind of like the social climate at the time. You know, what was it like growing up in that kind of period of uh, Dagnum, as it were? Well, you know, it's, it's very working class. And, I, um, I mean, my grandparents had been through two world wars. Mm. Uh, I think I was born in 1957, and I think rationing went out maybe two or three years before that. So it was, you know... You ate what what you were given, um, and they didn't. You know, I always seemed to be hungry. And I think a lot of kids did as well. You know, they um, and it was a very Spartan existence. Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't. Uh, you know, you were always on the lookout for sweets and things like that because there just wasn't the money around to buy it mm. uh, or to buy them. Um, and a pair of you know things like a pair of shoes would have to last you a year or two years. You know, and if if they wore out, then you you dad or your granddad fixed them with um, old tyres or whatever they could find you know so it was all really I suppose really like recycling and stuff but out of necessity um, and yeah it was a pretty you know I mean it wasn't you know I wasn't being beaten up and all that sort of stuff but it was a really it was quite hard you know yeah yeah definitely so when did you kind of you know excuse the uh, generalisation but when did you kind of become kind of political as it were Oh, that didn't. Oh, that didn't come in. You know, till years. Like I don't think. You know, that political. My political uh, realization came in really till I was in Crass. I mean, up until then. Um, you see, my my grandparents and and you know my mum were never into politics. Um, so it was never really spoken about, um, which is quite strange, really, because I I know a lot of people like there's a guy called Tony Parsons who you know is a reporter who writes now for the Daily Mirror. And uh, there's a guy called Brian Reed, you know, and, and they've and a lot of people I've met from you know my era, if you like, or my generation, they all at a very early age were given a, some sort of education in socialist politics. Mm. Um, you know, their their dads, you know, joined the union, or or you know they were, you know, into the socialist workers' party or whatever. Um, I didn't have any of that in in my family, so. Um, part of the reason I called myself Steve Ignorant because I was completely ignorant about politics. I mean, it just didn't touch me. Whenever I don't think my grandparents or parents ever voted. Um, I think if they had done, they probably would have voted Conservative, mm. uh, just because they liked the bloke's face, you know, <laughs> or the colour of his tie. You know, it was that kind of it was that kind of naive. Um, so my I suppose my politics, if you like, came from things like watching um, kitchen sink dramas um, and reading books. Mm. Um, where for me the, the politics was really a sense of what's wrong and what's right and what's fair and what's not fair, yeah, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. does. So I, mean, I assume you kind of got into 
punk rock, as it were, before you joined Crass. So, I mean, uh, mm. what sort of bands were you listening to at the time? Well, there wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm living down in Bristol, I mean, it's, um, you know, those provincial towns, it, it, you know, it seemed like at that time that, that um, you know, Sex Pistols and, and that weren't sort of venturing out too far beyond London. Mm. Um, and I think it's the same old story of, like, you know, the sp- London's the place to be, you know. Um, so the only band I'd ever heard of uh, was The Clash, and I went along to see them. I mean, Richard Hell was supporting, I think, with the Voidoids, but I don't... I really can't remember that at all. Um, and apart from that, I don't. Remember, I remember hearing about bands like um, Susie and the Banshees and, and the Slits, but never got to saw them. Uh, and I didn't get to see them until about six months later, when I was actually in London. Hmm. Um, you know, or living in Essex there at the Grass House. Um, so you know, I think it's always it was all at the beginning. It was always the same. You know, that people, if you wanted to see punk rock, you actually had to travel up to London to see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because even though bands were sort of playing in pubs and clubs and things, punk rock was considered to be the devil's child. Mm. So, um, you know, a lot of punk bands would be refused, you know, um, to be, you know, wouldn't be allowed to play in pubs and clubs and things. And that's something you later on tried to kind of remedy with Crass, wasn't it, by you toured quite extensively? Well, yeah, because we felt that, you know, London wasn't the, you know, be-all and end-all, and, and it was up to us to sort of set an example and go to places that, that bands... I mean, we played some ridiculous... I say ridiculous, but, you know, sort of looking back, you're like, why the hell did you go there? You know, places <laughs> like Winsford in Cheshire. You know, who's heard of that? Um, but we went, you know, and we used to have a great time up there. Um, when we started playing up in Cumbria, you know, and we'd be driving, you know, over the hills and lake districts, and you'd see all these sort of punks and things with knapsacks on traipsing across the fields you know, <laughs> to get to the gig and we wouldn't be playing in big clubs and things we'd be playing in you know scout halls and things like that um and yeah that was really important for us you know and i think really you you know a, a, thankfully a lot of bands took our example and started doing it as well you know um playing in places that uh, you know the 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 so-called known bands you know wouldn't wouldn't have touched with a barge pole yeah yeah and that's sort of something that's really kind of you know, touched a lot of people's lives as well, and it still continues to this day, especially with stuff like the hardcore scene and all this kind of thing. You see, you know, people making a real effort to try and get to these kind of uh, more obscure kind of places that, you know, so people don't necessarily have to travel all the way down to London. <laughs> well, days. yeah, well, my take on the whole thing was like, you know, uh, part of the reason we did our record so cheap was because, to my, you know, I didn't have a lot of money at the time, I was still on Dole, I think, uh, which was about £14 a week. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're talking a uh, um, late seventies here, um, and to me it was like, well, you know, I'd like to buy a record, but I'd also like to be able to afford a packet of fags as well. Yeah, yeah. So my thinking was like, you know, no, let's do the gigs cheap because then, you know, they can get in and then they can still have a beer or they can still, you know, have a burger on my own or something or still have buff fare. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was that kind of thing, really. Yeah, that's good. It's a kind of sense of sort of fairness, I suppose. Well, you, you know, I, I just always, you know, I mean, I still find myself, it's ridiculous sometimes, because I, I still find myself in this day and age, you know, right, I can either go to the pictures or I can have a pizza. So <laughs> I'll go to the pub. So, <laughs> yeah, I know the <laughs> And if I get like that, I'm sure other people do. So, you know, it's, it's an old working class thing, I suppose, you know, I don't know. How did you meet up with the other members of Crest and sort of form the band? What was the kind of story there? Well, I've been going to this place called Dial House, uh, which is where Crest started. Um, it's an old farmhouse in the middle of Essex, and I'd been introduced to that by my brother in 1973 or four, I can't remember. 
And um, it, to me, it was just a magical place. Um, you could go in any room you wanted to, apart from the private bedrooms. And if you wanted to cook a meal, you could cook a meal. If you wanted to write poetry, you could write poetry or draw or I, I don't know, do anything you wanted to do. Very creative place, you know. And for mm. a, uh, you know, for a teenager from Dagenham, it was just amazing. And being spoken to like an equal, you know, like an adult. And I um, know I kept going back and visiting over the years and over the years. And then when um, I decided I wanted to start a band, with absolutely no idea of how to do that, <laughs> uh, I went over to visit um, Penny Rambo. Um, who would always live at the house. And uh, I just said to him, I think they're starting a band, you know, a punk band. He went, oh, I'll play drums for you. Literally, that's how it happened. <laughs> um, and at first, it was going to be, uh, you know, I said to him, what about guitars and things? And he went, oh, we don't need that. We'll, we'll be a drums and vocals outfit. Um, <laughs> because I think at that time, neither of us was really taking it seriously. We, you know, we thought we'd play to friends and when they came over on a Saturday night or something, mm. you know. Um, and then this guy called Steve Herman turned up, who was the first um, lead guitarist out of Crass. Uh, he happened to have a guitar, so he said he'd join in, that was all right. And then um, Andy Palmer turned up, he couldn't play anything. And uh, so he went and nicked a guitar and came back. Um, so he tuned that to an open chord, so he just had to strum it. Yeah. Um, and then Pete Wright, who'd, and all these people had been visiting Dial House over the years, so we all sort of vaguely knew each other. And then Pete Wright, used to rehearse at Dial House every weekend with a little folk outfit he had going. And he got fed up with that, and uh, you know, I said, well, why don't you come in with us? And, and he did. And that, that was literally the start of the band. <laughs> um, it was all made up of people who'd been through it, you know, or, or had contact with Dial House. Mm. And the, the, um, from what I've read, there was quite a kind of contrast in the kind of social background of each member or of the group, mm. or at least some of the members. Did that kind of contribute, do you reckon, to the, uh, the kind of, you know, the style of Crass? Yeah, because, it, I mean, for us, we were looking for a classless... I mean, to me, punk was, you know, it weren't the way you looked. Mm. It was more like an attitude, really. And uh, and to me, it didn't matter if, you know, you you could have come from royalty, but as long as you had the right attitude, you know, you're still a punk in my eyes. So the fact that some people talk with a plummy accent or had been to a private school, like Andy Palmer, who had a really privileged upbringing, mm. uh, then you had me... But it made no difference to us because we was all in it together. We were just mates. You yeah, know? Yeah. And in fact, it was quite interesting talking to Andy about his boarding school um, because it sounded bloody horrible. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I never went. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the, uh, the English master inviting boys up for a brandy, you know, and warming the brandy glass between his thighs. Creepy or what? Uh, I mean, the funny thing is that people like reporters, you know, the press and stuff, tried to say, oh, crass are just, you know, upper class or middle class wankers, don't know what they're on about, reckoning, you know, they're from the street. Well, that really sort of, you know, that used to make me laugh, you know, because Penny Rambo, for all of his, you know, and he came from a privileged background, um, but, you know, he worked on a coal round, you know, delivering coal for two years. You know, I'd like to have seen, I'd like to see Gary Bushell or any of those other reporters who reckon they were working class do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, Andy Palmer ended up painting people's houses and stuff, you know. So it really made, it was just ridiculous, you know, that, that the fact that you might have a different accent um, meant that you were, you know, you weren't legible to be a punk. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. kind of goes against what the kind of ethos of punk was meant, you know, meant to be about, really. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, like the Bromley contingent, you know, who followed um, 
the Sex Pistols round, you know, well, they all came from art school. Mm. And no one sort of had a pop at them about it, you know, because it was Sex Pistols, it was all right. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but uh, sort of around the time of crass forming, punk did seem to be kind of becoming kind of commercialised at least you know you saw a lot of bands getting signed up to big labels and yeah there is on tv a lot what what just made you kind of was that maybe one of the deciding factors in why you decided to make crass sound the way it did and you know the kind of the, the act the way it did as it were uh well i think the reason crass sounded like it is uh sounded like it did was because none of us were musicians apart from pete really who could you know play the bass guitar pretty good mm. um Penny Rambo has got roughly three different drum rhythms that he can play. That's military style, a bit of avant-garde jazz, and a sort of sort of rolling jungle drum thing. Mm. Um, so uh, we were pretty limited. Uh, and also the reason that, that Crass, when we recorded, had a particular sound was because we try, always crammed so much onto the vinyl um, that the little grooves had to be so close together. Um, that's why it's so tinny. Because uh, you can't actually get the bass in there. Yeah. See yeah. what I mean? Um, with this new technology and with remastering, you've been able to do it, you know, pump it up a bit. But again, you know, in, in those days, it was no value for money. Value for money, put out as much as you can. That's what it's all about. Um, and uh, and I think really that, that's where that comes, because we weren't musicians. We, were, we had something to say, and we would write the song, and then we'd build up the sound around it. Yeah. Uh, so really, if you, if you look at a song like, I don't know if you know Crest stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, well... For example, Mother Earth, you know, which is about uh, Myra Hindley. Yeah. Um, the lyrics were written first, and then if you actually listen to it now, it's like quite creepy. Mm. Um, and it's because it, we wanted to build an atmosphere. Yeah, uh, yeah. Rather than a tune around it. You guys described yourself pretty early on as a narco punk, didn't you? Rather than yeah. just uh, straight punk rock. What is what is um what is a narco punk, and where does the kind of the idea sort of stem from? Well, when we when we started getting a, a following, we were being courted by um, the Socialist Workers' Party. They wanted to do, you know, they wanted us to do endless bloody gigs and benefits for them. Yeah. And we were going, no, we don't want to do that because we don't want to be seen as as left, you know, as leftist. Um, and then, of course, uh, we would be also being courted by the right wing lot, you know, because of uh, boot boy music, you know, a few skinheads came and all that. Mm. And we were like, no, we don't want to be seen as righties either. How can we get out of it? Right, we'll call ourselves anarchists then, because because that's not political. You know, it's it's just against anything. Mm. Um, I think Penny Rambo tried to call us nihilists at one time, but I didn't. I was like, no, no, I don't understand what that means. <laughs> um, so really, it was just a way of of us showing that we weren't that we didn't belong. You know, we weren't left or right. We were just us. Um, but then, of course, we came up against that thing that. You know, you have to remember that anarchism hadn't really been heard of by young people in those days, mm. um, and certainly not by me. And the only image that was around of an anarchist was that old poster you used to get with the bearded hippie throwing a bomb, yeah. or something like that. Um, so to show that we that wasn't the sort of anarchism we were talking about, that's when we put up the CND symbol, you know, mm. and the peace symbol, to show that we weren't into throwing bombs around. Yeah. It all started getting really complicated, you know. <laughs> um, but basically, that, that's what it was. Um, I mean, I never really, I think, looking back, you know, I never saw myself as a, well, yes, I did. But my, you know, but then, of course, because we called ourselves anarchists, you'd get anarchists, so-called anarchists, coming to your gigs and talking to you about anarchism, which I had no clue what, what it was. <laughs> um, and I'd be endlessly asked, have you read any anarchist literature? No. 
Right. Um, well, what have, you know, how can you call yourself an anarchist then? Well, because I have this sense of, you know, I think to me anarchism is about respecting yourself and other people as human beings. And where my sense of anarchy comes from is, again, uh, the angry young people writers from the 60s. Mm. People like Sheila Delaney, Taste of Honey, for example, uh, and Alan Silito. Um so that's where my sense of anarchism comes from. With the early shows, I mean, how did they go down? Because you, you guys did sound quite different to the kind of other punk bands of the time. How, 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 were, you, how were you received? Well, at the, at the very beginning, I mean, we used to clear the halls, you know. Um, people didn't get it at all. Uh, but I think that might have been because of, you know, bad PAs and we didn't have an idea that you had to have a sound engineer at the desk and stuff. Mm. Um, we just used to get on stage and crank it out. Um, but later on, after Feeding of the 5,000 came out um, and we started getting you know, more people coming to gigs, we got our own sound engineer and stuff. Um, but I think people, because of the record, people have realised that it was totally different from what everyone else was doing. Mm. Um, which I admit, I, I personally found a bit difficult you know, because I wanted to go up there and I'll admit it, I wanted to sound like the Sex Pistols or the Clash. Yeah. You know, those great throbbing bass things. And we didn't have that. And what we had was something that used to scare us as well, doing it, because no one else was doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was quite conf- confrontational, and I think a lot of the... We used to get stuff thrown at us, like ashtrays and bottles and things. And I think that came from people actually being scared. Um, and, you know, when you're frightened, you'll sort of lash out. And yeah, yeah. Sort of def- And I think maybe that's where that came from, you know, that we were really... You know, we used to stand at the front of the stage in black, you know, and stare in people's faces and sort of say you know like bring it on then um and uh we must have been fucking mad <laughs> <laughs> you know talk about get yourself an easy ride no um so i, I think you know it's funny because i was talking to who was i talked to i was talking to um uh bob butler who plays bass for me at the moment you know um yeah. and he said the first time he heard feeding of five thousand it actually frightened him you know because it was so in your face and you know um and I think that actually what Crass did was sort of put a benchmark down then on punk rock, the rest of it, you know, it all sounds really tame now. I was yeah. listening to the Pistols the other night. It sounded so slow and so nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, a bit like speeded up rhythm and blues almost. Yeah. Really strange. But I remember when I first heard Anarchy in the UK or God Save the Queen, my God, that was amazing, you know, sort of. So it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, no, I remember a friend of mine saying the first time he heard you guys, um, I think he actually saw you guys live, he said it was like a well-needed shock to the system for punk itself mm. kind of thing. and yeah, yeah, definitely. One thing that I've always been interested in is kind of, as well as the look of Crass, I know that you mm. obviously you don't want, you said you wanted to kind of not have a look almost. <laughs> so you guys, yeah. so I mean, is that why you guys dressed up in kind of black and, you know, that kind of thing? Or? Well, the, the dressing up in black thing, actually, and this is true, um, came back, Penny Rambo always wore black. Mm. Um, I just used to wear anything. I used to nick other people's clothes and things. And, uh, when we were all living together um, as Crass, we used to do the weekly wash. And um, someone, I think it was Joy de Vive or something, put a pair of red socks or something. No, she put, she put something in the wash anyway. It all came out a dirty grey. All of the washing, you know, my favourite white T-shirt came out, this sort of dirty grey colour. Yeah, yeah. And um, we, somebody just all wore it. And that gradually involved into the all-wearing-black thing. Later on it became... Well, we'll all wear black because it, you know, we'll all wear the same thing because it, it, you know, it will be hard for people to define who is the front man and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because we wanted everyone to be equal within the within the band, 
and quite often I'd get, because we used very dim lights, we used to use um, four 40 watt light bulbs at the front of the stage and that mm. was the lighting. Um, I quite often I'd get off stage and, and people wouldn't know that I'd just been on stage shouting at them. <laughs> um, so, so it worked. I mean, later on in years, of course, because I was, you know, hanging out in pubs and clubs and things, you know, people got to know who I was. Um, and, you know, even today now, I don't know. But at the time, it sort of worked like that. You know, there was no, no one could be picked out as an individual, if you see what I mean. Must have looked quite menacing on stage as well, kind of, if you've got um, well, any think, like... Yeah, from reports I've heard, I mean, it, it, some of the, you know, it did, you know, imagine that, we're all dressed in black with bloody armbands and stuff, with the crash symbol, which does look a bit sort of Union Jackie swastikery. Yeah, yeah. If you see what I mean. Um, and it, you know, sometimes I think it must have looked like a bloody Nuremberg rally or something. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with all these horrible images being flashed at you from TVs and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the I other mean, it's thing. Funny because I, I, I never actually saw Crass perform live. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, that's the other thing I was going to ask you about. Actually, is like you guys kind of also kind of sort of pioneered the use of kind of multimedia, I suppose, if you yeah. put it that on stage. And that was kind of. Uh, could you talk a bit about like kind of why you added that kind of component to the live? Uh, show well I, uh, no i think it was because uh um there was a guy called mick duffield who'd also lived and been in and out of dial house over the years and he really liked what we were doing and offered to you know make a film uh, a collage film and show it our gigs um so we said yeah um and then it was like oh well um we uh, the first video recorders uh, came out in those days so we got one of those and we used to film bits off of the tv um, and show that. So on one side of the stage, at the back of us, you'd have the screen showing all these images with mixed film. Then on the, on one side of the stage, we'd have a TV monitor, which was showing what we'd recorded, usually death and destruction off the news or something. Yeah. And on the other side of the stage, we'd have another TV monitor, which would be showing whatever programs were on that night. Um, then on top of that, you'd have us sort of screaming and shouting and carrying on. Um, so it was like this multi-visual thing coming at you. Um, but the idea of that was, well, even if you can't hear the lyrics because it's, they're being shouted too, too quickly or, you know, the sound is rubbish, you might, you know, remember a certain image and sort of remember the gigs or what you've been to in that way. Um, and it was, you know, it was just a sort of arty-farty way of trying it out, really. Um, and then other bands picked it up and that was great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you seem to, there seems to be this kind of... Um of repetition of like crass influencing other bands as well doesn't there i mean it, it, a lot of people seem to have kind of picked up the gauntlet that you guys threw down almost with crass was mm. that is that something that kind of you're quite proud of i suppose yeah i, I feel really honored by that um and i think it's great i think it's really good because i, I you know I, I don't think anyone's come up with another crass yet um but you know people have been having a really good go yeah, um, yeah, and I I think it's great. I mean, I'd rather. All right, maybe I've seen it all before, you know, and and I you know I don't need to hear another song about nuclear war or death and destruction, but I'd rather have people being creative like that and having a go, mm. than uh, having to suffer all this crap like Lady Gaga or you know <laughs> the, all this X Factor rubbish, you know. Um, they call totally... they, the press are calling Lady Gaga punk, but that that to me that seems like the most. Re- ridiculous well that's, that's the press for you isn't it i mean you know she's about as punk as my backside so <laughs> well actually my backside is quite punk, yeah. but, um, I, <laughs> I, know, I don't that. know <laughs> i don't know yeah i mean and it ridiculous you know yeah lady who you know what this contrived sort of sausage machine 
uh, you know, record label production, and that's all she is. I mean, I've seen her do an interview, admittedly, with Jonathan Ross, who's mm. not the world's br most brilliant interviewer. Um, and she just didn't have anything to say. You know, it was just like, all she does is wear funny clothes and sort of, well, anyway, each their own. <laughs> As my auntie used to say, whatever lights your candle. Yeah, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the... Uh... Obviously, the, the Feeding of the 5,000, that was the first kind of crass album to come out, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you guys actually put it out yourself, didn't you? Yeah. And that, that's something that's quite important. For, you know, well, actually, the first, we did it through uh, Small Wonder Records. Oh, right, okay. One. Um, it, and then what happened was that uh, because we had the track uh, on the original pressing, Christ Reality Asylum was actually on it. Mm. Um, but the, pr the pressing plant was in Ireland. And as you know, they're a very staunch Catholic country over there. Mm -hmm. And the plant workers heard it and refused to, to have anything to do with the record if that track was left on. Mm -hmm. So that's when we took it off and left the gap there, sound of free speech. Um, and then when it was, so we, we released um, Reality Asylum as a separate single. And uh, some kid's mum complained about it to the police. Uh, they came round, the, the obscene publication squad come round to see us. And after that, it was uh, um, we sort of thought it would be unfair of us because of the nature of what we're doing to jeopardise Pete, Pete Stennett, you know, the head of um, Small Wonder. Yeah, yeah. Because um, he used to run it all himself with his wife, you know, it's a very small concern. We thought it'd be unfair to sort of drop him in it or, you know, maybe get him in trouble mm. and lose his livelihood. And plus, you know, we didn't think it, I certainly didn't think it was fair because of what we were doing to cause trouble for, for like Cockney Rejects. For example, who were an up-and-coming band at that time, and they were signed to Small Wonder. People like Patrick Fitzgerald, you know, it just didn't seem right. So we borrowed, we borrowed the money and pressed the next one ourselves, and that's how Crash Records started. Yeah, and that's something that, um, again, was kind of a, quite a big part of the kind of Crash story, I suppose, wasn't it? The kind of the DIY ethic, the uh, this yeah. idea, yeah, this idea of kind of doing everything yourself and not relying on, you know, a label and a, you know, kind of. Well, yeah, because that's what our so-called leaders, like the Clash and the Sex Pistols, are saying. You know, yeah, we should do it ourselves, and we don't need the the music industry and stuff. And we were like, yeah, you're right. You know, um, well, look who went and joined the music industry, and yeah. <laughs> look who didn't. You know, and and I mean, we, you know, as a label, we were like, right, we're only, we're only going to put out bands that we like, or you know, as people or as actual groups, and that's why we did such obscure stuff. You know, and what was really nice was that other labels started doing it. Um, and I remember, you know, in the early 80s, you know, if you looked down the charts and stuff, there was such a range of, of music that you could choose from, you know, bands and stuff. Um, like you had the Stiff label and you had, you know, um, us and you had, you know, someone else. Uh, and it was great, you know. Um, and, uh, and suddenly it all sort of went away. And I think part of that was that we had this um, import from America, which was called, I don't know, grunge or something. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, the whole movement took three steps backwards again, because people like listening to these idiots doing free called fresh, which had all been done before. <laughs> uh, so you know, there you go. And, and bands like you know people like Reckless Eric suddenly didn't have anywhere to go, you know, because the whole circuit was taken over by this American influx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing I always thought was really kind of a quite cool thing to do with the, running your own label was uh, you made the records really cheap didn't you like you said earlier on they were kind of like three quid or something or four quid or something quite cheap yeah yeah 
And that's well, I mean, you could, well, we used to keep a recording cost down, and um, by doing it really quickly, and uh, we always printed on black and white. Yeah. Um, did it did it as cheaply as possible, but still did it neatly, mm. um, and that's how we kept the cost down. Yeah, again, and again, uh, that's another thing you see done again these days, especially in the the hardcore scene and stuff in the UK. You, you often see a lot of. Uh, you know, the vinyl records will have kind of just photocopy covers, just you know, black and white kind of thing. That's definitely yeah. that's another yeah. thing that seems to have carried across kind of thing. It must be quite yeah. liberating as well, you know, because you guys were at Dial House at this point, weren't you? And you know, running your own label, and I think weren't you even like living off the land a bit as well? You kind of had your own gardens and stuff. Where you... Well, we had a, we had a, we had you know we had a big enough garden to have a vegetable plot, so it made sense to sort of put vegetables in it and grow them you know and it, it, I mean it, we weren't self-sufficient but it did cut down on the food bills yeah yeah so. um, and of course then we got known that for that as well mm, if you need a garden well you know we're not saying to you go out and buy a place in the bloody country <laughs> or, and grow your own veg you know it's just what we do <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah now, now I think I think the next well at least one of the next records you did um, you weren't actually on which is the Penis Envy record yeah that was quite yeah. a big deal at the time wasn't it For I mean it was a kind of an arco-feminist album I suppose we called it yeah first time it had been done as well yeah yeah um, exactly yeah yeah so and I think that for people was a real eye opener um, and I mean at first I was a bit miffed you know <laughs> bloody hell I started the band and I'm not on it yeah <laughs> um, well, Steve, do you want to sing on a feminist record? Nope. Right, shut up, then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but when I heard it, I was like, oh, this is actually, this is really good, you know, when I read the, the lyrics and stuff. Um, and as I say, no one had done that before. I mean, you'd had a band like The Slits, but you couldn't really call them feminists, you know. And, and for the first time, I think there was, a, there was songs out there about feminism, which wasn't just saying... Um, I'll cut men's balls off or what our horrible men were and all that sort of stuff. And what's really nice is that um, even today, you know, being out on tour and um, performing um, a lot of the songs off of Penis Envy, a lot of women are coming up to Becky, um, you know, the, the female vocalist I've got at the moment. Mm. And, you know, these they'll always come to the front when Becky's doing her bits. Um, and then they'll talk to Becky afterwards saying how Penis Envy really changed their lives. Yeah. Uh, which is really nice, you know. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's great. Really good. So, and plus, I, I thought it was such a such a naughty thing to do, you know. Sort of, first of all, you release a real boot boy album, like, you know, um, Feeding the 5000. And next one, you put out Penis Envy, and all the blokes go, fucking hell, it's all birds singing. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, like, I really like the idea of that, of mucking around with them. <laughs> But why shouldn't you? It's punk, isn't it? Yeah. So what did you guys? What did you guys do like tour-wise? I've always kind of wanted to know this because I guess if, yeah, I guess you would go out on tour records once you release them, kind of thing. But were you just not on the Penis Envy tour, or would you just go out and just do the songs from the previous records? Or oh uh, no, what, no. What we used to do would um, we in, in the set we'd have a mixture of all the songs. So um, uh, I would be on. It's a bit like you know like why I'm performing today. You know, I'd do four songs. Then Eve Libertine would come on and do a couple of songs. Um, but I would just go to the side of the stage um, and that had never been done before either um, so that was a real spectacle and of course other bands picked that up which was really nice and and the lovely thing about um, Penis Envy uh, was that suddenly you had all these bands uh, and these blokes and women you know for the first time in their life trying to write songs about um, 
not necessarily feminism, but like trying to write songs about sexism and, and that kind of thing. Hmm. And some of them failed miserably, you know, but at least they had a go, you know, it was another sort of thinking point, really. And again, it's one of those records that you always hear quoted. I remember like back in the 90s, there was a band called Huggy Bear and they they always quoted Penis Envy as like one of their main kind of uh, influences. So it must be nice that this stuff still can, it's, I mean, it still is. You, I know lots of people that, you know, still buy Crash Records. It must be cool to see, you know, that it still has a kind of place, <laughs> as it were. Sort of oh, thing. it's amazing because like on my Facebook, you know, it's been a couple of people saying, you know, I've, um, I've just sort of bought my first Crash album, you know, I'm just loving it, you know. So yeah, it's really gratifying. Really yeah, lovely. Quite a special thing, I imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Now, one thing that happened yeah. during the Penis Envy uh, release that is I kind of find quite amusing, but also it's quite clever, was that you started the first of a series of kind of hoaxes, and the, um, I think this is one of my favourite ones was the uh, Creative Recording and Sound Service. <laughs> like, I know, I know. When it, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that literally started as a joke around cups of tea at the table one night. And um, and it, it usually started like this, you know, oh, wouldn't it be a laugh if, you know, we did this and did that? Yeah, yeah. And I think what, there was this magazine called Loving, <laughs> and it was a real pappy, sort of rubbishy <laughs> paper, you know. And, and um, so, yeah, we, and we've, uh, one of Penn's favourite songs used to be um, Lipstick on Your Collar, um, and we were joking with that, and, and Penn said, oh, you know, we should change it. And I said, what to? And he, and he said, oh, lipstick round your penis. And I said, oh, well, let's, let's go one further and have a green ring round your penis. No, no, <laughs> that's too far. Anyway, so that um, lipstick on your collar actually became that loving flexi. Mm. Um, so, um, and then as you, you know, so that, we phoned them up and said, look, we're a record, we're called Crescent um, um, Creative Recording and Sound Services. And we'd like to donate this um, flexi disc to your, you know, for people on their wedding day. <laughs> and they went for it, and um, and loads of people bought it and liked it. And actually, if you listen to it, there's nothing wrong in the lyrics at all. Mm. I mean, it's a very peppy bit, you know, set of lyrics, but there's nothing wrong in it. I'm, you know, I mean, it's quite a nice thing to have on your wedding day if you're getting married. Um, certainly, certainly nice and having oh, it's a living blast. Yeah. Um, but the minute it was like it's crass. Right, it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the magazine folded not long after that, actually. So, <laughs> Crass might walk the yeah. downfall of Loving magazine. Yeah, perhaps <laughs> you could try it with a bloody Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be a good idea. Mm. Definitely. Mm. So I think the next thing you did after that was Christ the Album, and that's kind of that was a, quite a turning point, because you kind of released it around the time of the Falklands War, didn't you? And, yeah. And uh, this is where it kind of... Um, a real change, kind of. Could you talk talk about what kind of happened to Crash during that period? Because there, this was well, quite what a... happened was that we'd done feeding, we did penis envy, then we'd done stages of the Crash, um, and then we we um, we were doing quite well, you know. And um, so for Crash the album, we decided right, um, we'll do a double thing and we'll put it in a box and it'll be a special occasion. What's it? And we took it was the first time we took. I think we took about six weeks to to sort of record it. You know, there's all keyboards on it and it's all a bit of a better sound and stuff mm. really fan it around um i suppose that was our sort of rock star bit in the studio and all this yeah um and then but but by during that the bloody falklands war started so by the time christ came out there wasn't one mention of the falklands war on it so then very quickly you went back in the studio and did uh, yes sir i will yeah yeah and, um, and bunged it out as quickly as possible. Before that, we did the Falklands Flexi, um, which was sheep farming in the Falklands. We produced that as a flexi disc. 
and uh, we gave that away free. Um, and didn't you get people in rough trade to kind of, um, you know, like uh, sort of secretly put them into the sleeves of other records and stuff? We did that, but also the nice thing was that we um, we just used to they, they used to be on piles, uh, there'd just be a stack of them in rough trade and stuff like that. And punks would, and it was for free, and punks would take handfuls. Um, and they'd, they'd slip them in the daily in um, daily newspapers <laughs> at stations and things. So everyone got involved, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a good, uh, like, kind of community. Yeah, it's re- really good the way they did that. So yeah, definitely. And, and also around this time, my favourite, I think, of all time, of like perhaps any kind of band hoax, was the Thatcher Gate tapes. Oh well. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about kind of people that don't know what they are? But because this was this caused quite a stir, didn't it? Um, could you? Yeah, well, it, again, it was like a, a tongue-in-cheek joke. Um, and in those days, I mean, it was uh, it was cassette tapes. Mm. Um, there wasn't any, you know, people have to remember that there were no mobile phones, there was no email, there was no computers basically in those days. Um, and uh, Thatcher and Reagan were sort of really cocking the world up. Mm. And uh, so we decided to sort of put our little spanner in the works. <laughs> um, so one person out of class, I won't mention his name, but it was a he, um, spent, you know, about two weeks uh, recording um, Thatcher and Reagan talking on TV. Mm. And then he um, painstakingly spliced, you know, physically cut um, these, these cassette tapes and stuck it all together. So what he ended up with, um, after all these speeches, you know, different speeches um, made by Reagan and Thatcher, was what sounded like a conversation between the two of them, very rough, um, where um, Margaret Thatcher admits culpability for the Falklands War, you mm. know, and is prepared to start a nuclear war if, you know, if need be, and that, that Britain is expendable within that. Uh, then the tape was sent to a friend in Amsterdam, who then sent it on to someone in Germany, who then sent it, leaked it uh, to uh, someone else. Mm. And the first we heard about it was about, oh, must have been about eight weeks after it had been sent off. And a little uh, column appeared in the Washington Post about a tape that had been discovered. And uh, then a couple more bits appeared in various papers, I can't remember what. And it was all this stuff about, you know, KGB sort of, try to undermine the British and American governments and all this. And we were like, bloody hell. <laughs> and then one day we got a phone call from this bloke, who, I think it was the Observer, and he goes, it's you, isn't it? And we went, what? And he went, this tape for him, it's you. And we went, no. And he went, look, I know it's you. And we was like, well, look, if you want to come over a cup of tea, you know, come and have a cup of tea. Anyway, he came over. We admitted it. Um, that hit the press. Um, and then the strange thing happened was that um, we had to do an interview with uh, Russian um, reporters and American reporters. Hmm. Um, well, the Russians were in one room, the Americans were in another one. So we were going from room to room, sort of doing these interviews. Well, the Russians, of course, had bought copious amounts of vodka with them, hmm. which we hit. <laughs> then we took through some vodka to the Americans. And they, the Americans were saying, well, ask the Russians if, you know, da, da, da. And then the, the Russian was saying, well, ask the Americans, da, da, da. So we said, look, this is stupid. Why don't we all just sit in one room and get drunk? So that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the whole, but, I mean, the whole thing just went, cra- you know, to think that a crappy old cassette spliced together in the back room of a farmhouse in Essex was sort of seen to be a KGB threat <laughs> by the CIA. And which is when we all got, which is when all of Crass got files on on us. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, MI5 as well, and our phone got tapped. 
So, because uh, yeah, I've, I've seen it excited that you guys basically felt that you guys were kind of being harassed by the government at that point as well. Um, well, well, we knew that they were, we, what we were doing was sort of very close to the edge, you know, and, and um, I think you know that one of the perks of the job, I suppose, is to you know get you know get your collar felt, isn't it? <laughs> So obviously, Crass broke up in 1984, and to, to a lot of people, that always seemed like quite a kind of structured thing because weren't the records like counting down or something? The label numbers. Yeah, well, that's, that's funny because it's really strange. Because I remember talking to Penn about that, and there was there was never, um, you know, although it was a countdown, um, it was just because of the book 1984. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember saying to Penn, "Look, what are we going to do when it's gone past 1984? You know, how are we going to do these record, you know, numbers?" And uh, he said, oh, I'll worry about it later. Um, coincidentally, though, um, Andy Palmer decided he wanted to leave the band in 1984. Um, and in, in sort of interviews, Penn has said, oh, it was always, uh, you know, we were going to stop in 1984. We weren't. Mm. I, you know, I don't remember that at all. No, we, we were going to carry on as long as possible. The strange thing is that by 1984, we were all burnt out. And when Andy said, oh, I'm going to leave the band now, I think me and someone else said, well, if it hadn't been you, Andy, it would have been me. Mm. You know, um, and I think everyone went, yeah, actually, he's right. You know, this is it now. We we can't we can't do no more. Yeah. Um, we we sort of really run out of it. Yeah, it seems like you kind of guys went out at a kind of peak as well, which is uh, you know kind of a good way to do to go. And I think actually that might have also been why, you know, you're in some ways you're kind of fondly remembered as well you know i think a lot of bands they'll kind of flog it won't they and you know yeah. people just get sick of them but you guys went out kind of at a peak and that definitely yeah. seemed to be uh you know one of the reasons well yeah which brings us nicely around to why i'm doing this tour now and stuff, yeah so. yeah <laughs> but uh yeah no i agree with you there we always you know if there's one thing that we can all be proud of in crash it's that we did stick to our guns you know and we did what we said we were going to do hmm. um and you're right we didn't flog it because i think you know in a funny way if we'd carried on trying to do it, it would have become embarrassing. Yeah. Um, I, or I think, you know, attendances would have dropped at gigs and stuff. You know, I, I don't think we could have said any more than what we had done. Yeah, the job was done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. All right, so, and this is, before we go on to kind of like the book and the Last Supper and everything, um, could we perhaps talk a little bit about kind of this kind of grey area, at least as far as I'm concerned? It's like what happened sort of between now and when you left Crass kind of thing? That's, I know that you join conflict for a while as well mm. and then is it true that you used to perform punch and judy shows yeah yeah i did that for about nine years brilliant how, yeah. did, that, how did that come about that's, that sounds really uh, well when crash finished um i was sort of sitting around and i was like oh i'll write a solo album you know as you do, as one being a dimwit that's the sort of thing you do you know oh mm. i'll do a solo album um and uh thank god i saw this this film called um this is Spinal Tap. Yeah. Uh, because originally I was going to do a solo album about Jack the Ripper. <laughs> 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 so I dropped that one like hot brick. <laughs> and, uh, God, imagine if I'd done it. Oh, God. Anyway, um, it's all CJT's and all, yeah. Uh, so uh, I thought, well, I still want to do a sort of, I'd still want to do something, you know. Um, and I was reading this old Victorian book I've got. Um, by a bloke called Henry Mayhew, and what he used to do, he would go and interview people in the street, like uh, crossing sweepers or um, muffin men and all that sort of thing, and the thieves. And, yeah. and he, he, he actually interviewed a Punch and Judy bloke. And uh, it was so uh, detailed, and he actually had the script in there. 
and uh, and it was also really political. And, uh, and I, mem- I remember being frightened to death by Punch and Judy shows when I was a kid. And um, so I started researching it, and I actually started writing. I've still got the scripts upstairs somewhere. I, I was going to do a sort of radio play. Yeah. Um, if you can imagine an album like being a radio play sort of thing. Mm. Um, and I started writing that. Um, and to give myself a bit of inspiration, I actually carved a, a, a Mr. Punch figure out of wood and sort of had it on the shelf there. Mm. And then I thought, well, we get quite a lot of kids coming over, and I quite enjoyed carving out of wood. So I carved a whole set of Punch and Judy figures. And then I thought, well, if the kids come over, I might as well do a little booth for them as well. So I made a little booth. And then I thought, well, I've done all this, I might as well try performing it. Um, so I did, and I was pretty good at it. And that's how that started. I got in touch with an um, entertainment agency. And, uh, yeah, did it for about nine years. Um, the interesting thing was, though, that when I was actually researching the history of Punch, um, I quickly realised that he's a real anarchist figure, mm. which I hadn't realised before. And um, when you start really looking into it, you realise that he's an alcoholic, um, hunchbacked cripple, um, but always wins. Hmm. Um, and he, in the, certainly in the Victorian times or the 1800s, he was seen as, as a real working class hero. And the original punch shows weren't designed for children, they were designed for adults. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, reading into it, I mean, for example, you know, there, was, there used to be, uh, in the 1800s or even up until 1900s, there used to be a blind beggar character in the show who would knock on the door punch would open the door and the blind man would knock on punch's nose because obviously he didn't realize the door was open mm. um and punch would say what do you want and the blind man would say oh um i lost my sight in the sands of egypt have you got any you know can i have a penny and uh it doesn't really mean anything until you realize that when the the english forces were deployed against the um you know the, the french in the napoleonic wars there used to be a sand fly that used to lay its eggs in you in and around your eyes which which would cause temporary or um, you know um, permanent blindness, and anyone infected with that was sent back to England and left to be a beggar on the street. So that sort of, to me, put up a parallel with the Falklands War when there was going to be a victory parade, but the injured weren't allowed to take part because the sight of them might upset people. So it all sort of, and suddenly it all slipped into place then. So. Um, and I just loved the way that you could, you know, that Punch used to hit the copper and not get arrested. Well, he used to get arrested, but then he'd trick the hangman into his own nose. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the whole history of it, you know, I really, really got into it. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, yeah, I didn't, I've never looked at it in that way before, actually. That's quite interesting. I'll, I'll definitely keep that mm. in. That's a, Crass didn't kind of, well, for you at least, Crass kind of didn't completely go away. You you um, did a couple of shows in Shepherd's Bush, didn't you? Called, I think just, Yeah. And um, there was always this kind of, I've, I've personally never understood it, but there was always a kind of controversy about these shows happening at least with some people not with like the i wouldn't even say the majority but with some people that you'd see it online and people yeah. complaining about it why do you think is it is is it because crass is so precious to people do you think that you know the idea of someone going and doing these songs again i, I think yeah i think so i you know it was i had a lot of that oh steve you know you're going to blow the myth of of crass you know oh don't destroy the legend and all you know well sod it, you know, that's why Crass exists in the first place, was to destroy myths and legends, you know. Um, and it, it's very strange because people don't mind if someone like Jeffrey Lewis, for example, brings out an album of Crass songs mm. done in a sort of country and western style. Uh, that's okay. And no one minds if, if bands do Crass covers, 
but the minute the bloke who used to be the lead singer from Crass wants to perform those songs, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> um, and I, did, I was like, what bloody hell, I didn't want to, want to sing the songs that we did. God, you know, it's not like I'm sort of doing a Levi's advert or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, I think that um, everyone who came along to those shows uh, was so sort of knocked out by it. Um, that uh, this time round, you know, no, I think there's a few complaints, but you know, I'll deal with that guilt the second bottle of brandy I drink. You know, <laughs> really don't bother me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so no, it, it, I think that's what it is. You know, that people have this sort of mythical idea of what crash should stand for. You know, that's the other weird thing. You know, that all my life, you know, I've been told what I can or can't do, hmm. and suddenly, you know, here are these people telling me what I should or shouldn't do about a band that I actually used to be in and they weren't. Yeah, yeah. It's mad, isn't I had it the other night in Amsterdam, some, you know, some kid, I went, how old are you, mate? He went, oh, I'm 32. And I went, and you're telling me what I should or shouldn't be doing as regards Crash songs. And he went, well, what Crash was about? And I went, so you were never in a band and now you're going to tell me what Crash was about. <laughs> and that's the kind of weird stuff you get, you know, so you can't win. No, no. <laughs> 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 did the shows in London lead to um, you know the reactions you got from that and everything did that kind of lead to you then putting together um... oh yeah yeah because I mean although a lot of people I mean a lot of people came from um, oh god America and France Christ knows where you know um, and uh, after about a week after I'd done those Shepherds Bush gigs um, the phone didn't stop ringing you know come to Los Angeles come to Berlin do this do that and I was like right no um, so I took a couple of years off um, because I, I figured, and I still won't do it again, mm. you know, those two nights in Shepherd's Bush, we were feeding the 5,000, they were a one-off. If, if anybody missed it, I'm sorry, but mm. I'm, they are never going to be repeated because they were unique. If I tried to do that again, then it's going to be like flogging the dead horse. Yeah, yeah. But I did want to do something more, you know, because I realised that globally um, there are people who really want to see those crash songs performed mm. again. So I thought, okay, then I'll do. I'll what I'll do. I'll just do, you know, my favourite. Um, so that's what I'm doing, um, and people are really appreciate appreciating it. You know, I mean, they're really. I think people are really enjoying coming to almost the press gig, um, but coming to hear those songs, and um, without the weight of of the time of when they were written on our shoulders, it's almost like a celebration of it. Yeah. And yeah. people are smiling, you know, and and sort of really enjoying it, and and I think really. The major thing what I've realised from doing this tour is that it gives people an opportunity to come up and shake you by the hand and just say thanks. Yeah. And that's all they want to do. Yeah, yeah. It's not a God worship or anything like that. It's just a real appreciation. You know, and I think people really appreciate that. You know, to stand there and have a couple of minutes chat with you and have a beer together, you know, or get a picture taken. I don't mind, you know. But it ain't God worship or anything. You mm. know, it's just people wanting to say thank you. Yeah, In the same way that if I was to ever meet Barry Hines, who wrote Kez, I would do the same thing. Yeah, definitely. Now, we sent our um, webmaster to go, in, the guy that does, designs our website for us, to go and check check you guys out in Manchester, and he said that the atmosphere of the show was actually really, you know, kind of pleasant. It was a kind of, you know, everyone was just having fun. It was kind of a, a kind of, like you said, like a kind of celebratory kind of atmosphere. Kind of. Yeah, well, everyone, you know, a lot of the audience are as old as me now, but, you know, they're all in their 50s and 40s, you know, and, Steve, I would stay and have a beer with you, but I've got the baby sitting, you know, so it's that kind of thing. And it, but it's, like, really cute, you know. So, no, it's just really nice, you know. That, 
and for us, you know, middle-aged people, you know, it's just nice to go to sort of look at each other and go, weren't those songs great? And it's like, yeah, you know, and God, didn't we have our time in the 80s? Yeah, weren't it horrible? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Sort of, no, it's really nice. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, how long is the Last Supper going to last for? I mean, this is... Well, I'm plan- I've, got, um, I've got to go to... Uh, we're going to Finland in a couple of weeks' time. We're doing two dates there, and then we have a couple of days off, and then we do um, Dublin, and then we do Belfast, and that's it for this year. All right, and then so that's all Europe done, as much as we could do, or what offers we got. So next year, we look at. I think it's going to be in April, May. I think we're going to America, and then it's there's talk about going to Australia and New Zealand. I'm not sure what's happened about that. Oh. Um, and then next year, I'm hoping. By June or July, um, to to finish off, do the the very final gigs of the Last Supper at Shepherd's Bush Empire again. Excellent, and yeah. that'll be it. Yeah, I've definitely come to that one, I think. Um, yeah, but the, the thing is, I've got to put a deadline on it, because I, you, you can't have this sort of Last Supper going on for 10 years, can you? It's, you know, <laughs> it's a long like supper. Like 69 or something, really <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one last thing is like you've got you've got a book coming out. How did this come about? Is this something I'm, I still haven't got my my hands on the copy of it yet. I'm meant to be getting, but right. when I do, I'm quite looking forward to reading it actually. After especially after this interview. So yeah. can you tell us right, a bit about right. how kind of the book came about and you know like how it's been received so far and everything? Um, well, it came about. I've been trying to write a sort of autobiography for about twenty years, but um, I always find it really hard to write about myself. And trying to write it myself, I kept getting bogged down and you know, on passages and then I'd get bored with doing it and sort of bung it in a drawer. So I just uh I got I met this guy called um Steve Pottinger, Spot is known it. Um, met him and uh, he gave me a copy of a, a little book that he had done of his prose poetry. And it's the way that he writes is very sim- very similar to me. So I said to him, Would you be interested in helping me write my autobiography? So he went, Yeah, okay. The nice thing is that he didn't, you know, although he's heard of Crass, he didn't really, he didn't go to any gigs or anything. Yeah. Um, so he, he was able to do a really unbiased view of it. Yeah, that's good, yeah. I mean. um, and basically what he'd do, he would come over, interview me, ask me questions, which, and then he'd, he's, he's very good, Steve, because he would, he would say, well, what happened then? And I'd go off on this tangent and remember something I'd maybe forgotten. Mm. He'd go away, type it all up, uh, email it to me, I'd sort of check for it and change little bits and pieces. So together we actually, you know, wrote this book. Um, and what's nice about it is that um, it's a really, I think it's as honest and sincere as I could get it. You know, I haven't, um, because of Steve, you know, I've not been able to make myself bigger than what I've seen, you know. Mm. Um, you know, oh, I was a real football hooligan. No, I wasn't. I used to go to matches now and again and get the shit kicked out of me. You know, so, um, and I used to, no, I didn't. I used to say that. So... Um, it's a very honest sort of thing, and I, because I wanted to show people that I'm just a human being, you know, and um, you know I'm just like anybody else with all mistakes and errors that I'm that I've made and still will still make. Um, and there's photographs in there of my family and and me before I was a punk and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I touch on Crass, um, but it's not all about Crass. It's about my entire life from birth to now. Hmm. Um, and the reviews of it have been really good. You know, people have been sort of writing to me and saying, oh, you know, it really reminds me of my childhood, you know, and, all my, and my school was just like your school, you know. Or I've even had a, um, an, um, an email from a bloke who went, used to go to the same school that I did. 
And uh, he said, yeah, I remember that teacher. He was a really sadistic bastard and he got the sack <laughs> and all this kind of thing. So it's like really nice, you know. Oh, that's good to hear, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, before we let you go, um, what's your, do you have any like plans post The Last Supper? You know, what what what, what are you going to do next? What, after The Last Supper? Yeah. Oh, I'll take, I think I'll take a year off or something like that. Um, but what I'm going to do after that is like a spoken word thing. Um but it'll be with, um, I want to do it with um, a little stage set, you know, with like a few props. So it's a bit like watching the play, if you know what I mean, yeah, with lighting yeah. and the visuals. Um, I'll, have a, I'll have a keyboard and a double bass and a little drum, so there's like background music. Um, and uh, and I'll just talk about me, really, and sort of anecdotes and stuff. And then mm. what I'm sort of playing around that is maybe opening up to the audience so it's like a question and answer thing. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Because um, yeah. I think people have got a lot of questions they want to ask me. So, in a, in a sense, it, could, it might be like, you know, an audience with Steve Ignorant, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that'd be cool, definitely. I like um, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I've got to do, um, on Monday, I've got to go down to Rough Trade in Brick Lane in London there, and I've got to do a book signing thing, and that's going to be a question and answer forum thing so i'm looking forward to that yeah yeah definitely that'd be good i, I always really enjoy watching people like henry rollins from black flag and um mm. jello biafra do that kind of thing they're always kind of yeah it's always interesting stuff <laughs> yeah anyway steve thanks a lot mate i really appreciate you giving us quite a big chunk of your time actually sorry i've uh, no, okay. no, that's all right mate
and that was Lunar Abyss Quartet before the break with the track Buravana. Um, Lunar Abyss Quartet are a fantastic uh, band and one of the many uh, kind of droney bands I listen to and if you listen to our other show Behind Closed Doors you'll uh, soon uh, get quite a good collection of that kind of stuff. <laughs> mainly from me but uh, anyway yeah thanks a lot to Steve Ignorant for coming on the show it was a really really great conversation I've, I, I don't know I just think the guy's uh, you know, one of these just rare kind of punk guys you meet every now and then that isn't preachy and isn't kind of uh, isn't trying to kind of prove a point all the time he's just genuinely interested in kind of uh, fairness and uh, <laughs> making good music and you know having fun by the sounds of it so I really enjoyed that that interview and also thanks to Joseph Matheny for coming on, um, our gracious new host in the States. Uh, look out for a show. We're planning on doing a show together uh, in, in the future. Um, so look out for that. That's going to be kind of a conversational show, I think. So that's, that should be quite, quite good fun to do. Anyway, uh, if you're listening you know, on Alterati, uh, you can always come to our site at sittingnow.com. It's S-I-T-T-I-N-G-N-O-W.com and check out our archive. I think we might even sort of publish some of our archive shows as well on Alterati. I think that was kind of the, the plan, although I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, so uh, normally we have a segment <laughs> called uh, MySpace Heroes, but due to a kind of administrative mess up on my end, that's not happening this week. So instead I gave you Lunar Abyss Quartet. Anyway, if you want to get in contact with me, it's ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Like I said before, check out the site, sittingnow.co.uk or com, depending on your, which way you swing. Um, you can check us out on MySpace, if anyone even uses that anymore, at forward slash sittingnow. Uh, Twitter, um, at sittingnow. Strangely, and we're about. I think we're going to set up a Facebook group because that seems to be what the kids are doing these days. Anyway, uh, but yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks. With uh, I should probably mention this actually. We've now got a kind of two weekly slot for sitting now, so uh, we quite like the idea of having a kind of a, a set in stone kind of uh, schedule. So we should be appearing every Wednesday, um, except for this week. I think we're coming out on Thursday. So from now on, every other Wednesday. We'll be sitting now and every other Monday consecutively we'll be uh, behind closed doors. So we'll see you on Monday with behind closed doors and then the week after that with another episode of sitting now. So uh, and we've got a returning guest who hasn't been on the show for a while and I know you guys all really like so look out for that one. Anyway, see you soon. Bye.